0: The first reading this morning is from The Barn at the End of the World by Mary Rose O'Reilly. The Sufis teach that in order to reach a new plane of understanding, you have to pass a specific number of experiences. 100? 538? Who knows? Then in some cosmic transaction, your visa gets stamped and you move on. It's as good an explanation as any for how differently people live on this planet. Some bound on hurting and damming up the flow of mercy. Others prodigal as Francis of Assisi, throwing away all they own for joy. And most of us making our cautious way between. Eventually, the need to love someone well becomes like the skins longing to close a wound to stretch the length of a blue-rimmed bullet hole. Forgiveness moves on some glacial scheme of its own. I suppose the slow pace of forgiveness, the tedious creep of skin over laceration, maintains some cosmic economy I cannot comprehend. We're threaded into a pattern too vast for our own eyes, and even a red ribbon of anger plays its part. Meanwhile, I shake my fist at the Most High, saying, Look at all the anger I've taught my daughter. Surely that cannot be good for her. Would it spoil one of your major plans? I sing out like Tevye if I were to become a better person.
1: The second reading is a poem called Urban Law by Alison Hawthorne Deming. Rush hour and the urban outflow pours across the million-dollar bridge. I wait for the walk light, cross-traffic slight, but cautions the rule when the city roars toward all its separate homes. I get the sign, Little Electric Man, and step into the street— A woman turns into my lane, bearing down eye contact, and still she guns it until I stare and shake my head in disbelief at her ferocity. She slows, begrudged to let me pass, runs down the window of her sob and shouts, why don't you wait for the light, and flips me the bird. I feel weepy like a punished child, mind sinking to lament what's wrong with the human race. Too many of us, too crowded, too greedy for space, we're doomed, of course. So I head for coffee and a muffin, walking sad and slow on the return. I'm waiting again to cross, picking fingers full of muffin from the paper sack and watching the phalanx of cars race by, not even a cell of a thought in my mind that I might jump the change. When a man who's got the green stops, an executive wearing a crisp white shirt and a shiny red tie and he raises his palm to gesture me safely across making all the cars behind him wait while I walk and together at rush hour that man and I redeem the whole human race (laughs) thank you Nellie we are so fragile our cracking bones our breaking hearts Make noise. We are just breakable, breakable girls and boys. I know as I look out among you that when it comes to the topic of forgiveness, you are, if not experts, good students. To be a human in time and space is to be breakable and broken. We get yelled at in traffic or we do the yelling. We get waved across the street or we are the one who stops and waves and waits. We help each other, we hurt each other, we need each other. That's my starting place when I talk about forgiveness, our January theme. I still use the copy of Joy of Cooking I got for Christmas in 1969, 40 years ago. This uh, fragile, breakable cookbook has memories stained into many of its pages, especially the peanut butter cookie page. I've always loved how the Joy of Cooking fish chapter ends. The authors give many dozens of fish recipes arranged alphabetically by fish. So fried catfish, scalloped cod, marinated herring through casserole octopus, glazed salmon, broiled swordfish, poached turbot. And then the final fish recipe on page um, 362 just says, whale, last but vast. How to cook a whale. Get a really big pan. As I thought toward this month's worship theme, forgiveness, that phrase kept coming to mind, last but vast. Forgiveness is a whale of a topic for exploration. Vast and last in a way in that it is a lifetime work, forgiving and being forgiven Forgiveness is a big part of getting our house in order when we come to die. We know this. The hospice booklets tell us that two out of four of the things we need to say to each other pertain to forgiveness. The final four are thank you, I love you, forgive me, and I forgive you. Last but vast. As the monthly themes come around, our church staff likes to take some time at a staff meeting, To talk about them, last Tuesday, the staff conversation on forgiveness started a little tentatively, a, a trickle, just a trickle. Then it became a gush, then a torrent, as we recalled little or big lingering situations in our lives, and the questions began to emerge. Have I forgiven this person? Was I the one out of line? Is accepting an apology the same as forgiving? Are some things unforgivable? Forgiving doesn't mean the offense was okay, does it? It just means you're not going to let it rule you anymore. After 25 lively minutes, we had to close the conversation and someone said, we only have a month for this. (laughs) Yes, but a month with five Sundays. (laughs) It's vast. Mary Rose O'Reilly says, forgiveness moves on some glacial scheme of its own. Eventually, the need to love someone well becomes like the skin's longing to close a wound. She says, I suppose the slow pace of forgiveness, the tedious creep of skin over laceration maintains some cosmic economy I cannot comprehend. We're threaded into a pattern too vast for our own eyes. Even a red ribbon of anger plays its part. We know that in this world the pattern of revenge and hatred is vast, ancient, fed every day by new bloodshed and breakage. We know about the vast pattern of hurt and warfare. That's why it's so startling when we hear about those who, who break the pattern, who do something out of sequence. Kelly Clement reminded us last week of the Amish community that forgave the gunman a couple years ago and even reached out To the gunman's family, the people of the Amish faith are also part of a vast pattern, a pattern of forgiveness, one they've been practicing for over 300 years. If you'd like to read stories about surprising patterns of forgiveness, I recommend a website called The Forgiveness Project. It's an international nonprofit dedicated to healing the wounds of the past. The Forgiveness Project collects people's stories. You see a page of tiny headshots of individuals from all over the world and you click on a photo and the larger picture and the full story appears. There's Bud Welch whose daughter Julie Marie was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. In the months after her death, Bud changed from supporting the death penalty for Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols to taking a public stand against it. There's Andrew Rice, whose older brother, Banker David, was killed on September 11th, 2001, in the World Trade Center collapse. Andrew is now a member of Peaceful Tomorrows, a group founded by family members of September 11th victims seeking effective nonviolent responses to terrorism. There are stories of people in Northern Ireland, Rwanda, the US, England, South Africa, Israel, the Ukraine people who are part of a pattern of forgiveness so vast. People who, whose need to forgive is like the skin's longing to close the blue-rimmed bullet hole to stretch across the wound so they stay with it, even when forgiveness moves at a glacial pace. In my office here at church, I keep a few copies of Clarissa Pinkola Estes' Words on Forgiveness when our people are looking for guidance in their vast task. I like to offer them Estes' perspective. Estes unpacks four different aspects of forgiving, to forego, to forbear, to forget, to forgive. And she writes in Women Who Run With the Wolves, this is, this is, uh, these are Clarissa's words, sometimes people think that to be stuck in an outdated rage means to fuss and fume and throw things. It does not mean that in most cases. It means to be tired all the time, to have a thick layer of cynicism, to dash the hopeful, the tender, and the promising. It means to be afraid you will lose before you open your mouth. It means bilious, entrenched silences. It means feeling helpless. But there is a way out, and it is through forgiveness. Oh, argh, forgiveness, you say. Anything but that. But you know in your heart that someday, sometime, it will come to that. It may not come until the deathbed time, but it will come. Consider this, many people have trouble with forgiveness because they have been taught that it is a singular act to be completed in one sitting. It's also taught that forgiveness means to overlook, to act as though a thing has not occurred, but these these things are not true. The important part of forgiveness is to begin and to continue. The The finishing of it all is a life work. There are many ways and portions to forgiving a person, a community, a nation, for an offense. It is important to remember that a final forgiveness is not surrender. It is a conscious decision to cease to harbor resentment and to give up one's resolve to retaliate. Forgiveness is an act of creation. You can choose from many ways to do it. You can forgive for now, forgive till then, forgive till the next time, forgive, but give no more chances. You can forgive part all or half of the offense you decide. How does one know that one has forgiven? You tend to feel, Sorrow instead of rage. You tend to have nothing left to remember to say about it. You are not waiting for anything. You are not wanting anything. There is no lariat snare around your ankle stretching from way back there to here. You are free to go. It may not have turned out to be a happily ever after, but most certainly there is now a fresh once upon a time waiting for you from this day forward. Estes' words. In the archives of the Forgiveness Project, there's a story of a woman who was brutally assaulted when she was out running over in Wisconsin. She picked a man out of the lineup, and he went to prison for 18 years, and then after 18 years, DNA testing showed she'd picked the wrong man. This woman had spent a couple decades trying to forgive the man, and now she'll spend her future forgiving herself. Self-forgiveness, she says, is way more difficult by far forgiving ourselves. It's a big one. It may be the bigger one. I wonder occasionally when I'm here at church and I need to remember to do something. I call myself at home and leave a message. It's quick and easy. I call my home number. I hear my phone ring. I hear myself answer and I invite me to leave a message. And I do. I say, hey, Kate, it's you. Would you look for the book of wedding readings and bring it in for Sharon? Thanks. See you. (laughs) The first time I did this, called myself and heard myself answer. I had a strange couple of seconds where I wondered this person I'm talking to, will she be glad to hear from me? (laughs) Will she get back to me? Is she kind? Has she forgiven me for some of the dumb things I've done? Do we have unfinished business? I even had a teeny urge to stay on the line and check out a couple things. Hey, that weird time back in, what, 1991, and that thing that happened around the time Dad died. Is that all okay? Are we square on that? (laughs) Do we need to talk? (laughs) I almost wanted to ask, have I stopped and waited for you at crosswalks, or have there been times there probably have? I bore down, pedaled to the metal, and for all impractical purposes, flipped you a bird. If so, I'm really sorry. When you Google how to apologize, you get a drop-down list. How to apologize to a girl, to a friend, to a girlfriend, effectively for cheating, to a guy, to to your mom, to someone, to a woman. Nothing about apologizing to yourself. But it's interesting to imagine how some sound guidance on apologies might apply to yourself. Rochelle Melander of the Alban Institute has some good thoughts in her article, Learning to Apologize. She writes we mess up. Inadvertently or with intent, we hurt one another. As much as I hope that tomorrow will be different, I know that tomorrow I will, will be the same broken human being I am today. We may as well learn how to apologize. Here, I think I'll give you all a minute to uh, pick a situation close to home and imagine this happening. Milander gives us a four-step process. First, hear the hurt. Listen and learn how we've hurt the other person. It's not comfortable. We want to say, No, you're wrong, I'm not that bad. Instead, the idea is to be still and listen and then ask, Is there more? And when we've heard the whole story, we check to see that we've heard well. Is this what you're saying? We ask and we repeat the story till we get it right. The second step, we say, I'm sorry. We do not qualify our apology by saying, I'm sorry if you took offense at what I said. I'm sorry if you felt that way. I'm sorry you heard me say that. That's like saying, I'm sorry you are hypersensitive. I'm sorry you are mixed up. I'm sorry you don't hear well. (laughs) All demeaning. The best apology is just, I'm sorry. The third step is making it right. Both parties talk about what can be done to bring healing. They ask, what are our needs now? What do we do or say differently from now on? They look each other in the eye and agree on a plan. And the fourth step is asking for forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness officially is essential. It's not so helpful when the offended one brushes off our apology with no big deal, or what's done is done, or no problem. Rochelle Melander says, it's hard to be content with no big deal responses when we suspect that it was a big deal. These responses don't have the healing power of, I forgive you. To say, I forgive you, is to say we're letting go of any claim for punishment or payment. We're ending our hold on the other person and we're setting them free. If the wronged person does not offer forgiveness, Melander says, simply ask, do you forgive me? Four steps. Hear the hurt, say I'm sorry, make it right, ask forgiveness. And then I'm thinking we might be wise to go through the whole thing, all four steps again with ourselves. I know and admire a woman whose life journey, she's in her mid 40s with children, has included living with the fact that when she was a young adult, she was driving the car the day. She had the accident that killed her father who sat beside her in the passenger seat. She considered suicide, but instead she chose meditation. And her life has been about healing and becoming a healer, which she is. She can see into things. People can bring her anything, she's unflappable. The one with the most hospitable heart. I haven't known regret like hers. I do remember, though, a particular time when I narrowly escaped a bad crash. It was my fault. It was years ago, but I remember it because something important happened in my heart. In a confused moment, I turned left against the light, or I, did not, I turned left without signaling I can't even recall. I only remember that the oncoming car screamed to a stop and saved us both. I was so rattled, I immediately pulled over into the closest parking area just to get my breath and fall apart a little. When the other car followed and pulled up beside me, I braced myself. The guy who got out of the old Chevy was 20-something with tattoos, and he was going to let me have it. I was ready. I had been stupid. But what this man did, he was almost a kid, was he came over to me with a face full of concern, and he asked really politely, Are you okay? He asked me, the negligent one, if I was okay after I had nearly killed him. And when he did that, I felt something release way down in my chest. It was beyond personal. He gave me back my dignity and redeemed the whole human race. One thing I understood right then was that the hardest thing ultimately is to be the perpetrator. And I got a better understanding of something else, too, something Jesus reportedly said to his disciples when they complained about the sudden generosity of a former sinner. Jesus said, essentially, one who has been forgiven much loves much. The disciples didn't quite get it, but I do. When I think about the woman who was driving with her father, when he died in that accident, I have a wish or a hunch or a prayer that her father has visited her somehow, maybe often, maybe in dreams, and he's come to her whole and with the tenderest concern, the tenderest expression, and asked, are you okay? Because they both know that she's the one who needs the reassurance. She's the one who needs to be set free. When I have forgiven myself and remembered who I am, I will bless everyone I see, so says the Course in Miracles. No matter how careful we humans are, we can never be careful enough to avoid hurting and being hurt. That's the human condition, and that's why we need constant, vast forgiveness. Not long ago, Buddhist nun Pema Chodron interviewed Buddhist teacher... This is just a, a wild attempt to pronounce this... Zigar Kongtrul Rinpoche, and asked, what advice do you have for Western Buddhist practitioners? For Western Buddhist practitioners. He replied that what we in the West need to understand is guiltlessness. Guiltlessness, she said. Yes, he said. You have to understand that though you make a lot of mistakes and you mess up in all kinds of ways, all of that is impermanent and shifting and changing, and temporary, but fundamentally, your mind and heart are not guilty. They are innocent. He said, most of our striking out at other people in this culture comes from feeling bad about ourselves. He said, and here I'm paraphrasing, when you get upset or hooked by something, in the first four seconds, it feels like bad me. After a few minutes, it's shifted and it feels like bad them. Our response is to blame and the root of it is a deep discomfort about ourselves. Rinpoche's advice was, next time you get hooked by something, pause, breathe, and let it be. Don't strike out at yourself or anyone else. Breathe, relax, let all the feelings pass through you. Let the whole thing, as he says, unwind and unravel. Feel how it feels to hang out in ineffable space. And this may be what it feels like to be burning up the seeds that have caused all the pain on this earth. And what will we find? Here Pema quotes a, f- a poem by Rick Fields. Behind the hardness, there is fear. And if you touch the heart of the fear, you find sadness. And if you touch the sadness, you find the vast blue sky. Theologian Matthew Fox reminds us that the universe forgives, the earth moves on, while daisies bloom again on the battlefield. Our universalist message of hope says that love has the final word and love's work is to heal and forgive. It says that vaster than our wrongs is the vastness of the mystery. And it says that that vaster than our misdeeds and hurts is the vastness of our kinship. It says the last vast thing is love. From this knowledge flows our gratitude. Will you pray with me? Spirit of mysterious life, spirit of vast love, we invite you to do your healing forgiving, creative work in us and through us on behalf of all. So be it. Amen.